Hi, this is William Ramsey. Welcome to William Ramsey Investigates. On tonight's show, I have a very special guest. His name is George. He is from CAVDEF, C-A-V-D-E-F. And he has done extensive amounts of research into serial killers and serial killings. And on tonight's show, we are going to discuss in detail the Atlanta child murders that took place in the late 70s and early 80s. George, are you there? Yep, I'm here. Awesome. Thanks for agreeing to the interview. For people who don't know about you... Maybe you can start off just talking a little bit about yourself and uh, how you became interested in these this serious subject. Sure. I mean, for the past couple of years, I've operated the, the Coalition Against Voter Disenfranchisement and Election Fraud, uh, or just CAVDEF for short, as you said. This is basically a like big research project of mine that started out just focusing on election fraud issues, but then I quickly ended up leading me down a lot of other paths because, you know, going into the background of election fraud showed, uh, you know, connections to subjects such as drug trafficking and pedophile rings. And so I ended up branching out and studying a lot more of this stuff. And then when I was looking into uh, elite pedophilia, that ended up leading me to the topic of serial killers. And it turns out that uh, a large number of very well-known prominent serial killer cases actually have this sort of elite pedophilia backdrop to them where it wasn't just one crazed individual targeting and killing people at random. It was actually uh, a big pedophile operation that involved a number of people, often well-connected, wealthy, and prominent people. And it was largely only one person who took the fall for a much larger group. So that sort of pattern of serial killers being sort of a cover for elite pedophilia has become one of the topics that I research quite a bit and particularly with the, the gay serial killers, the one that target men and boys, this pattern uh, is particularly pronounced. Interesting. And what were those cases to enumerate them? What are those cases? Uh, some of the biggest examples, I would say, are John Wayne Gacy, uh, the famous killer from Chicago. I'd say most people have heard of him. Uh, Dean Coral of Houston, who was basically kind of like Gacy uh, before John Wayne Gacy became famous a couple years prior. There was the Oakland County child murders in Michigan uh, near Detroit. And, of course, the Atlanta child murders uh, from the late 70s to the early 80s, which were all pinned on Wayne Williams, even though there's a lot of evidence that he was not far from the only person involved and may have been innocent of the murders. Interesting. So these are some of the big cases that really illustrate this pattern. So in like, well, where do you want to start? Do you want to start with uh, Atlanta child murders? Do you want to start Oakland County? And we can go through and show that there's something else going on, particularly with uh, the Atlanta child murders. My understanding is that there were two murders that occurred after uh, the, the so-called lone murder was apprehended. Is that true? Well, yeah, I mean, there's a lot that is problematic about the Atlanta child murders. And throughout the entire investigation, there was this this official list of victims that was being compiled by the state authorities and the local authorities that were investigating. But this list was pretty dubious and was criticized by a lot of people who were, you know, journalists who were following the case because there wasn't really a whole lot of rhyme or reason for why people were or were not being put on the list. Uh, I mean, one of the best books about this subject is actually called The List by Chet Detlinger and Jeff uh, Pra. Of, um, and this book basically sort of goes into that and, um, and really eviscerates all of the authorities who were saying, well, it was only these people who are, were killed 
by the Atlanta child murderer and not these people. But the reality is that there were there were about 30 people on the official list, but there were, you know, 30 more or like 30 more people who were killed during the same time period and had a lot of similarities to the, uh, you know, to the official victims. And there was really no distinguishing them, but for whatever reason, they were left off the list. And as you say, there were a lot of people fitting the same pattern of these Atlanta child murders who were be killed after Wayne Williams, had, the official suspect, had been taken into custody. So that, on its own, is a pretty good sign that they had not caught the sole person responsible for these murders, that there was a much deeper and more pernicious thing going on than one lone killer. And my understanding is that there was like a house that involved older people and uh, some some of the young children. They were all kind of younger African-American uh, boys and teenagers were lured into this place, and uh, it wasn't just Wayne Williams, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, first of all, it wasn't just one house. There were actually a couple houses that were like this. Uh, the two major examples were the the home of John David Wilcoxon, who was a, a white man, and then there was also the home of uh, Tom Terrell, known as, who was an older black man known as Uncle Tom, and the nearby house of Larry Marshall, who was acquainted with Tom Terrell. So uh, two, at least two of the Atlanta child murder victims, uh, one of whom was Earl Terrell and one of whom was Luby Jeter, were known to visit the home of John David Wilcoxon, who, along with two other accomplices, uh, Fr- Francis Nathaniel Hardy and Lionel St. Louis, ran this, this child pornography and pedophile ring in Atlanta. And this this pedophile ring that was run by Wilcoxon and his associates had, you know, I mean, I'm pretty sure it had hundreds of boys in Atlanta as victims, and they were being photographed and forced to perform sex acts and basically being given, you know, I guess pocket change for what they were doing. So tons of boys were basically being lured off the streets into this ring to participate. And two of the boys who witnesses identified as visiting this house were... Uh, Earl Terrell and Luby Jeter, who ended up becoming victims of the so-called Atlanta child murderer. And in fact, uh, the last known sighting of Earl Terrell was at a public swimming pool that was right across the street from Wilcoxon's house, which is somewhat suggestive of where his uh, final moments might have been spent. And the authorities tried to claim that there was no connection with Wilcoxon uh, to the Atlanta child murders because Wilcoxon only had uh, photos of white boys in his possession in his child pornography photos. But this was almost certainly you know, false and was essentially a cover-up. Uh, some police officers who were involved in the early investigation said that there were black boys as well as white boys depicted in Wilcoxon's collection, and shortly thereafter, all the photos of black boys just disappeared. And, in fact, one of the victims who was testifying at Wilcoxon's trial was a black boy. So that alone pretty much uh, eviscerates the idea that Wilcoxon was only abusing white children and that there could be no possible connection to the Atlanta child murders. So those two victims were, uh, Louis Jeter and Earl Terrell, were linked to this one pedophile operation in the East Point area. But then there was also a much uh, bigger operation that was being operated by a couple of uh, black men in in a couple homes on Gray Street, and basically it was 
there were up to, I mean, there were up to 10 of the boys on the list, so that's, you know, a third of the Atlanta child murder victims who were said to have visited this house and basically performed sexual favors for these old men. And, I mean, this house had, this house also had this weird uh, drug, like something that these boys would inhale that looked a lot like mud, that they would, they would essentially sniff to get high. And one of the, one of the victims, uh, Timothy Hill, who was known to be associated with Tom Terrell, uh, was last seen by his sis, by his younger sister getting into a taxi with a man who rubbed, who rubbed something that looked like mud on him, which seems pretty indicative of Earl, T- of, uh, Timothy Hill, you know, going with Tom Terrell or one of Tom Terrell's associates, uh, in his last confirmed sighting. And the, the curious thing about that is, you know, this whole, this whole aspect was investigated. I mean, a lot of this stuff was investigated by local police departments, but as soon as Wayne Williams came along, they pretty much closed all these cases and disregarded all these leads. And Tom Terrell was interrogated by uh, police, and he admitted to having sex with, uh, with Timothy Hill. So he basically admitted to child molestation, and yet he was never charged with this crime. And I mean that was a that's one of the other irregularities you see where a lot of these pedophiles are essentially being protected and totally let off the hook. Now, as I said, Tom Terrell was a, a, acquainted with a another man named Larry Marshall who lived very close by. And around March of 1981, uh, Timothy Hill apparently delivered a, some note to Larry Marshall telling him to leave Atlanta, so, which was seen as sort of like a veiled threat or a warning. And so Larry Marshall fled all the way to Connecticut, but he was eventually arrested and brought back to the city. And as soon as Larry Marshall was arrested, that basically, uh, there was a sudden shift in the pattern of murders. As soon as Larry Marshall was arrested, all of the victims from that point on stopped being children and started being adults instead, which to people like Chad Detlinger, who studied this, is very suggestive of the idea that as, uh, as soon as there was a risk that these pedophile operations were going to be exposed with people like Larry Marshall being arrested, that there basically started to be a cleanup operation of adults who had been luring children into these pedophile rings. And in fact, Wayne Williams himself is a good candidate for having not necessarily been involved in the murders, but luring children into these pedophile networks. So you're saying that some of the later murders that are associated with the Atlanta child murders are actually clean-up killings to cover tracks. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, basically, I mean, if you look at, like, a lot of these older uh, victims, for example, Nathaniel Cater, who was one of the people that Wayne Williams was uh, was charged with murdering. Like, Nathaniel Cater, interestingly enough, like, lived in the same apartment as one of the very early victims of the Atlanta child murders. Uh her name was Latanya Wilson. And, like, in one of the witness sightings of, like, one of the last witness sightings of Latanya Wilson, like, around her, uh, the time of her abduction, uh, like, somebody apparently, like, broke into the house and then left, basically left grabbing Latanya and then spoke to another black man in the parking lot. And Nathaniel Cater was suspected of being that black man who uh, Latanya's abductor was speaking to. So that's, fairly suggestive of the idea that Cater might have been uh, procuring, you know, procuring victims for this network. And another one of them 
uh, Jimmy Ray Payne, according, um, who was another one of these murdered adults, uh, who I believe Wayne Williams was charged with murdering as well. Basically, there was this inmate in Massachusetts who claimed that Jimmy Ray Payne had been, basically was part of this uh, pornography network that was nationwide and sort of headquartered in New York, and that he was, uh, you know, modeling for pornography, but so was one of the child victims, Darren Glass, who was accompanying him. So you already, you have just like signs, obviously nothing definitively proven, but definitely hints that some of these adult victims were actually the involved in getting bringing these children into the network in the first place. And another one of the uh, interesting connections with Nathaniel Cater is that he was, Nathaniel Cater was at the, uh, this like, basically this club uh, where, and Nathaniel Cater himself was like a male hustler, like he would, uh, he would accept money for having sex with people and he would hang out at this uh, Silver Dollar Lounge and at this lounge he, he ended up meeting this one uh, this one man named Jamie Brooks who was the manager of a laundromat and Jamie Brooks was actually like he was actually seen uh, murdering one of the Atlanta child killer victims you know in a lot of these cases most of the Atlanta child murders you know you know that the victims disappeared or even may have been abducted you may have like a last known sighting of them but there's not a lot of definitive evidence as to how they were actually murdered but one victim of the Atlanta child murders named Clifford Jones, it actually is pretty much known with certainty exactly how he died and who killed him. Uh, Clifford Jones was at a, a laundromat in Hollywood Plaza, and he was. there was this one witness named Freddie Cosby who actually saw the manager, Jamie Brooks, uh, with, a, with two other men uh, who were accompanying him, uh, you know, basically anally raped this boy and then after he started screaming and crying they put a rope around his neck and strangled him and then two other witnesses saw a uh this man wearing this hooded robe walk toward the dumpster carrying some large object and then deposit it there and then make a phone call uh and the police ended up uh and in fact uh, Clifford Jones's body was discovered because someone made a phone call and tipped them off where it would be. So it's pretty likely that they witnessed the murderer uh, making that call. So you have one witness to the killing, two witnesses to the disposal of the body, and then you have a fourth witness who said that he was in uh, Jamie Brooks's house and actually saw um, saw that he owned that exact same type of hooded robe. And then uh, this fifth witness who said that he was with that. He was with that man who. Uh, he was with that fourth witness who saw Jamie Brooks with the hooded robe, and he. This fifth witness was at the Silver Dollar Lounge with Jamie Brooks and Nathaniel Cater. So, you have basically five witnesses building a pretty compelling case that Jamie Brooks is exactly who the. Uh, that Jamie Brooks was definitely the murderer of Clifford Jones, uh, and yet Wayne Williams was accused of being the killer instead against all the evidence. So that's just one of the good examples of how blatant the cover-up was, that you literally had the murder get witnessed, and yet Wayne Williams is said to be the killer instead. Now, wasn't Wayne Williams, wasn't he caught dumping a body into a river? And wasn't most of the bodies uh, dumped in water, is that correct? Uh, I wouldn't say that most of them were. I mean, a lot of them were... Uh, were just dis were like discovered essentially out in the open, like 
lying in you know, abandoned areas. But yes, yeah, some of the bodies were uh, dumped in rivers, like the Chattahoochee River, such as Nathaniel Cater, the one that Wayne Williams was accused of killing in that whole famous bridge splash incident. Right. Now, there are definitely some problems with uh, whether that incident was actually legitimate, uh, because there were, in fact, witnesses who said that uh, Nathaniel, they saw Nathaniel Cater alive the day after the, the alleged bridge incident. And at one point, like police, there was this one witness who police were trying very hard to uh, sort of break down and question her story. Like, are you absolutely certain that it was on this day? But they would not back away from saying that uh, Nathaniel Cater was alive the day after the supposed bridge in- incident happened. So there, there is definitely a question as to whether this whole uh, this incident, which was supposedly the the smoking gun that really uh, made Wayne Williams a suspect in the first place, whether it actually happened or whether it was something that was made up so that they could finally arrest somebody and close the case. Interesting. Now, I would, I would say that um, I, 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 I go back and forth between how culpable Wayne Williams was in a lot of this stuff. I do believe and I can go into why a bit later, I do believe that Wayne Williams was the uh, procurer of children for uh, this pedophile, for like pedophile networks. I, he could have killed people like Nathaniel Cater uh, and some of the other adults potentially. Like if Wayne Williams was a procurer and these other people were procurers, it's possible that they were, uh, that they might've been, you know, turning against each other to try to cover their tracks. So of all the people who, might have been legitimate victims of Wayne Williams. I could see Nathaniel Cater being one, but that, but that's really the problem. That Wayne Williams was he was only charged officially with the murders of two adults, uh, you know, Nathaniel Cater and uh, Jimmy Payne, or, I believe. So Wayne Williams was only charged with the murder of two adults, so, and yet, yeah. and yet. At the trial, the state is allowed to bring up like 10 other cases of murdered children, say that these are pattern cases linked to Wayne Williams. So he's only charged with two murders, but he has to defend himself from 12 murders. And of course, and the, the whole big thing they tried to use to link him to these murders was, you know, fiber evidence that they claimed was totally unique to Wayne Williams and, uh, you know, definitively may establish a pattern between all these cases. Now, the thing about the fiber evidence is that, uh, I mean, if you actually, if you watch interviews with some of the forensic examiners, they say, like, you know, this fiber case was stronger than anything we've ever seen before and have ever seen since, which is already kind of interesting that in the this huge murder case that you have the clearest cut fiber evidence ever before. Uh, yeah, and, but... The other problems you see with the fiber evidence, like in one case, uh, like they said, well, there were fibers from Wayne Williams's from one of Wayne Williams's cars found on a victim, but this victim was abducted and killed before Wayne Williams even owned the car, and uh, they also said, well, the fibers were these unique fibers were found on the body of Clifford Jones, even though there's pretty much no doubt that Clifford Jones was killed by somebody other than Wayne Williams. Whoa. So. There's a, a pretty good indication that a lot of this forensic evidence was being planted on these victims to try and link Wayne Williams to these child murders when, in fact, as I point, you know, the clearest suspects for these murders are definitely the pedophiles that these children were associated with. And uh, a, star- a startling number of the people on this list were associated with these known pedophiles, and yet it was all brushed aside. It was all 
put on Wayne Williams. And as I said before, there are signs that Wayne Williams may have been a, a pedophile recruiter, and there are just a couple of curious pieces of evidence in that direction. So what, like, are the, what are those pieces of evidence? Well, if you look at, uh, first of all, Wayne, I mean, Wayne Williams himself was basically going around as this, claiming to be this, you know, talent scouter, a music promoter who was basically like getting kids off the streets and saying, well, I'll polish up their image and then I'll make them into musical stars. And uh, Wayne Williams formed various groups in that capacity, like one of them was called Gemini. And he would take what was found out, and this was in Chet Detlinger's book, Wayne Williams would take uh, the Gemini group to a couple of places, including the Apogee Recording Studio. Well, it turns out to be that the Apogee Recording Studio was actually owned by a, a well-known child pornography kingpin named Michael Thevis, uh, spelled T-H-E-V-I-S. And Michael Thevis was using this uh, Apogee Recording Studio for filming child pornography. So, I mean, Wayne Williams... So it's very curious that Wayne Williams would be taking his uh, children who he was recruiting off the streets and promising, you know, success and prominence to this studio that was owned by an Atlanta child pornography kingpin. Right. And Wayne, Wayne Williams' other uh, sort of pastime was like a, you know, an amateur freelance photographer. And uh, his father, Homer Williams, was actually a professional photographer and right after the supposed bridge inc incident happened and the heat started getting cranked up on Wayne Williams uh, Homer and Wayne basically performed a major cleanup operation of a lot of the photos that they had like they were burning their photographic prints and negatives on the outdoor grill right like they caught them yeah the police caught them doing that right or watched them do it I don't know if the police caught no. them, but a, a neighbor at least saw them doing this and reported it. So, you know, they were trying to clean up and totally remove photos of an unspecified nature, which is, uh, I obviously can't prove anything because the photos are gone, but it's very telling. And about the Apogee recording studio, uh, like soon after, around the time of Wayne Williams' arrest, there was this major break-in, and then the whole place was trashed. And uh, according to some witnesses, it was actually the police themselves who broke in and trashed it. For so, what what purpose? Just to to cover up what was going on? Well, there? I mean, well, that's the question. Like, we don't know exactly what the purpose was, but it all looks very suggestive of uh, a need to clean up a lot of this evidence that might have uh, shown what was really going on at the recording studio. Because you know, a lot like all these recordings, uh, that was part of the evidence that was just smashed up and gone forever. So. I, I mean, I, I certainly couldn't say definitively what uh, what the motive was to do this, but it all does fit within the parameters of a, a cleanup operation of the pedophile ring evidence that was going on. Right, and it was a huge news back in those days. Maybe people aren't around there, but uh, you can just see all the news reports, bodies were piling up. I think the President uh, Bush, which is creepy, I think even Barbara and George Bush were involved in creating a task force or an FBI task force. Or something like that. So they were yeah. involved, yeah. Right, yeah. I mean, Vice President Bush came down at one point and basically was saying, well, if you can't handle this on your own, you know, I'll, we'll bring in the FBI to help you, uh, help you deal with this. And, of course, the FBI and their famed profilers came down and said that it was a single black serial killer who was responsible. And, I mean, I mean I'm of the opinion, just studying a lot of these serial killer cases, that in many ways, the whole label of a serial killer 
is kind of inherently fallacious. Because, I mean, just because you have a lot of crimes that are occurring in a similar fashion, like, they, just because they're all probably linked to each other doesn't mean that you can say definitively that it was just one person person, behind them. A lot of the times it's also very consistent with the idea that a much larger criminal enterprise was involved in all of these, uh, involved in all these crimes together. So just because you have a commonality in how they were committed doesn't prove whether it was one person or a bunch of people. But the FBI's profiling uh, bureau basically comes in and says, oh, it's always one guy. And these profilers are sort of viewed as the voice of God, like no one really questions their wisdom. That's so true. I mean, John I've, yeah. I've, John Douglas does profiles, but his profile of the West Memphis Three is laughable. I mean, it's embarrassing. Yeah. It's so bad. So the, I don't yeah. even know if these guys read the case files or look into things. And, you know, there's there's definitely an interest in na- tabbing the bad guy and, and doing a perp walk and everybody celebrates and great job. Everybody's back, it's slapped, etc. I think that that's a very common theme that plays out in so many of these cases, whether it's, uh, you know, Son of Sam or many of these other cases. They just clean up everything else. Nope, one guy. Unfortunately, uh, that is the way it goes. And I'm pretty sure that John Douglas himself was one of the profilers in the Atlanta child murders case. Now, I mean, the interesting thing is that even Douglas, of all people, was eventually forced to admit that he thinks that some of the victims were not killed by Wayne Williams. But the problem with that is that it's basically only like sort of a, a like it's sort of a last ditch like acknowledgement of what was obvious to most thinking people beforehand and sort of just trying to save face in a way. I mean you're saying he's basically just saying, Well yeah, Wayne Williams was a serial killer behind many of these murders, but there were a couple that weren't him, which is totally missing the point of what actually went on in Atlanta. They're the very high chance that pretty much all of these murders were by the same sort of group and for the same general purpose, but there were, but it was a much larger group than just Wayne Williams. And if you want, I mean, I've definitely gone over the pedophile aspect, but there are, are also some rumors of a satanic occult connection there as well. Well, can you talk about that, please? Sure. Now, this came about as the result of an informant uh, from Miami. Her name was Shirley McGill. Uh, she was a cocktail waitress, and she had this uh, sort of like on-and-off relationship with a, a taxi driver and a Vietnam veteran named Parnell Traham. And she ended up coming forward to uh, Roy Innes of the Congress uh, of Racial Equality, mm-hmm. you know, one of the activists who was deeply involved in the Atlanta child murders case at the time and she told the story that this uh, basically that her boyfriend Parnell Traham had been operating this big drug trafficking ring that stretched from Miami to Atlanta and also to Houston and this drug trafficking ring uh, was I mean not just involved in moving drugs but it was also involved in occult rituals and abducting children and performing sacrifices and I mean, basically making sort of snuff and child pornography of these people. So what you basically had uh, Shirley McGill claiming was this sort of this satanic slash drug cult that, of course, is very familiar to people who study things like the Son of Sam case and the Process Church. It's basically the same sort of pattern of activity that you see a lot of these cults engaging in. And one of the uh, most interesting, well, a couple interesting interesting things there are that... Um, Shirley McGill actually claimed that 
uh, Larry Marshall, who was one of these pedophile suspects, was known to her and was part of this operation, uh, but he used a different name. Apparently, according to Cisco Street Love's book on the Atlanta child murders, which is called Yesterday's Shame, uh, Larry Marshall used the name Ted Washington when he was in Miami and participating with this group. So that basically means that there's, provided that Shirley McGill was telling the truth about the whole thing, that there's a confirmed connection between this pedophile underworld that's already known to be linked to the child murders and the satanic cult that she talks about. And Shirley McGill basically said that a lot of these children were brought in by this satanic cult and they were, uh, you know, they were sometimes sacrificed in these rituals or they were given over to other men, including uh, some white men, to be molested and killed by them. And uh, note what I said about Parnell Traham being a taxi driver, because as I pointed out with Timothy Hill, the last known sighting of him was getting into a taxi with uh, a man who rubbed mud on his face. So that would certainly fit with uh, Parnell Traham essentially picking up uh, Timothy Hill along with Tom Terrell, one of the pedophiles who was linked to the operation, and then taking him to some unspecified place. So, and it actually turns out as well that Timothy Hill's mother uh, had seen Parnell Traham in the area uh, shortly before the murders. So oh. Parnell Traham wasn't just a random guy that had been, you know, picked up and brought in and injected into the story with no basis in fact. Uh, Traham had actually been in the area and seen by the mother of a victim. So, I mean, what's, there, what's the, isn't the opinion of the mothers that multiple people were involved or the parties were involved? Because I don't even think the mothers believe it was all Wayne Williams. Is that correct? Oh, that that is definitely correct. I think most of the parents of the victims do not believe the official story whatsoever. They think that it was, they think that it was all a cover-up. And, I mean, you you can find endless quotes by these mothers saying things like, you know, Wayne Williams didn't do any time for killing my child. Like, he didn't do time for killing nary a child. And you can see all sorts of quotes like this. As You're definitely right. They do not believe for one second that it was just this neat and tidy case with Wayne Williams who killed all of them, and that was it. So, yeah, I do think, and this is often a pattern that you see in a lot of these cases, you know, other, you know, child abduction and pedophile ring cases, too, with people like Noreen Gosh, who are refusing to believe uh, these official stories that are being blasted in their faces, even when the the law enforcement is trying to cover everything up. So I think, you know, the mothers, the mothers of these victims often have, you know, this unique strength that a lot of other people just don't seem to be able to manifest, which is not surprising, of course. Yeah, it's pretty remarkable. When you say the guy's rubbing mud on his face, is it literal? Are you saying literal mud, or is that a euphemism for something? Uh, no, it's that that drug that I talked about earlier that uh, Tom Terrell had in his house. That it looked like mud. It had the consistency of mud, but it actually like smelled like acetone, and it was something that they would uh, inhale to get high. So this this was just a drug that these uh, that these adult pedophiles would use, uh, or presumably use with these kids. Was it like, uh, what do they call it, a popper? What is it, amyl nitrate or something like that? Sounds, it, you know. Yeah, it might have been something like that. Uh, but yeah, it, it was not real mud. It just, uh, it just, I mean, it was Timothy uh, Hill's little sister saying this, and I guess that was her best uh, assessment of what it was. It was interesting. And did, they, did the process ever, process church ever come up in these murders? I thought that there was somebody who said one of these guys was a process church member. Uh, well, there are some 
potential Protestant church connections, I mean, first of all, according to Maury Terry's book, The Ultimate Evil, uh, the Protestant church left New York shortly after the Son of Sam murders, and then they resurfaced in Atlanta right before the Atlanta child murders began, oh, which, I mean, yeah, that's, I mean, that's a very telling pattern, you know, to be there, to be in New York when one set of Protestant-connected murders happens, and then to resurface in Atlanta right before another string of murders that appear to be occult-connected happened. And as for, uh, a, you know, known Protestant church connections, I don't know if there were any proven links to the Protestant church, but, I mean, there were just, there were some signs like, uh, like, I mean, Wayne Williams, uh, he had, you know, he had a German shepherd, and that was obviously one of the dogs that was revered by and sacrificed by the cult. One of the, uh, trackers, like one of one, I think one of the like child trackers who was in these search teams named Don Lakin had a bunch of German shepherds with him, and Don Lakin was very interested in occult in occult connections to the murders as well. And there's one claim, although it hasn't been confirmed, that he admitted to Wayne Williams's defense team that he was involved in Satanism. Wow. So, and the interesting thing as well is before Shirley McGill even came forward, there were actually some other discoveries in. Uh, in Atlanta, they were kind of hinting at a satanic connection. In January of 1981, there was this, uh, a lot, some of these search teams discovered an abandoned house uh, in, I believe, the Adamsville area of Atlanta. And this abandoned house had, I mean, it basically had this, it had a smell of rotting flesh uh, that one of the searchers said resembled, uh, you know, one of the bodies that they had found in one of their prior searches. There were, there were two Bibles nailed to the wall, open to you know pages talking about children and murder, and uh, even like making reference to children to like children being laid out on the ground to be found, which is the same manner in which the victims were often found. And apparently, there there was also like a letter in the house that someone had written to the man residing there that was calling him a sick pervert, and the person who was renting out this house said that he had previously rented it to like some man and witnesses around the area said that a man and a child would visit the house so the again you know obviously we don't know exactly what happened here but uh it's very interesting that you see a house you know with all these sort of a with these signs of occult symbolism with you know bibles being nailed to the wall and uh evidence that there was a man and a child there and this man was a pervert so even back then, you know, this sort of satanic connection had come up in the Atlanta child murders case even a bit before Shirley McGill came forward. Did you uh, ever find any connections to, like, elites within Atlanta, or was this a group? And was there any, there was no evidentiary connection between Wayne Williams and any of these other people, Wilcoxon, Terrell Marshall, anything like that, correct? Not no direct connection that I'm aware of. I mean, it seemed kind of like there were a couple of these disparate pedophile groups. Like, you know, you had Wilcoxon's group at East Point in the East Point area. You had uh, you had Tom Terrell and Larry Marshall who were linked to, uh, I mean, they were linked to the Satanic group. You had uh, you had Jamie Brooks who was kind of linked to Nathaniel Cater, and uh, Nathaniel. And Nathaniel Cater and Wayne Williams may have had some association with, you know, being procurers. But for the most part, yes, you know, you had a lot of these pedophile groups and no proven links between them. Although 
I, I kind of do suspect that there may have been this, this upper level that was never really discovered in the murders. There was sort of basically was using all of these groups uh, to kidnap children and, you know, make child pornography or prostitute them out. And it's possible like that there was some, you know, higher level kingpin who was involved in all of this. And it's a name that I mentioned earlier, uh, Michael Thevis, who owned the recording studio where Wayne Williams would take his Gemini group is a decent candidate for that. Uh, you know, he was basically the, the kingpin of child pornography in Atlanta, and he may well have been, have had contact with all of these groups. So it, it's not known exactly how it all connected, but, you know, the pattern is there, and it's pretty clear that pedophilia and pedophile networks were a big component of these murders. Now, as, as the other question about whether there were connections to elites, I mean, Wayne Williams himself was, kind of well-connected for a for a young, especially for a young man like him. He knew uh, a couple of state representatives in Atlanta, uh, and one of these representatives he uh, like invited over to his house a couple days before the rest, and this representative, if, uh, if my memory serves me, this name was Representative Hosea Williams, and Hosea Williams basically told Wayne Williams, you know, if you get arrested, I'll hire you uh, this lawyer, and this lawyer had been the same person who represented Michael Thevis in his child pornography case. Wow, wow. So Thevis was arrested, and also Will Coxon. So these guys were kind of known to the police for at least some crimes as well, though, right? Well, yeah, a lot of these people who were pedophiles uh, did end up going down on various charges, and Will Coxon did get arrested. Jamie Brooks got arrested for other child molestations later. So, yeah, these people... I mean, at the very least, many of these people did eventually face justice, but what the authorities never did was really connect them to the Atlanta child uh, murders in the first place. And when you look at a lot of these, this weird conduct by the by law enforcement, uh, you know, totally ignoring a lot of these leads, trying to discount the fact that, witness, that witnesses had literally seen Jamie Brooks murder Clifford Jones, uh, evidence that the you know these, these fibers were planted on the victims to implicate Wayne Williams. A lot of this misconduct eventually, I in my estimation, becomes a bit too coincidental to just brush off as uh, something other than a, an actual cover-up that was ongoing. So I do believe that even if the the known facts of the case never made it to implicating high-level pedophiles, I think that. There may have been a cover-up to make sure that the the investigation stopped in its tracks and never led back to that point. Gotcha. Yeah, it makes sense. It seems like that's the case. Where were almost all of the victims and the people in these networks were they all pretty much disadvantaged children? There was no child, middle class kids, or anything like that. They were all kind of like from single family homes, single parent homes. Uh. I think for the most part they were definitely in the poorer areas of of Atlanta. I mean, like, Wayne Wayne Williams himself, I would say, you know, was he himself was middle class, and he was in a different social standing than a lot of these kids. And like I said, Wayne Williams would go around and sort of promise you to, you know, take kids off the streets and puff up their image uh, and make them more presentable. So, yes, there, w- there definitely was a, a lot of socioeconomic disadvantage that many of these victims faced. And, of course, is just another reason for the the elites of society to consider them exploitable and disposable. And Wayne Williams to this day denies any involvement, correct? Yeah, Wayne, Wayne Williams, he maintains his innocence to this day, and uh, 
I would say public opinion is kind of split on how legitimate that actually is. And Wayne Williams has definitely shown himself to be very evasive. And and he has lied about various things. And I think that he's lying to try to distance himself from the fact that he was uh, basically bringing children into a pedophile ring. And you, you can even you can see interviews with him like on a CNN program, Wayne Williams was actually confronted by the news anchor about something he had written in 1992 where he claimed that he had, at the age of 18 or 19, been recruited into this uh, this local camp in Atlanta right. for CIA-type training. So Wayne Williams actually did claim that, uh, claim that he was being recruited for the sort of intelligence type of uh, training, and he... Uh, he was very slippery about this whole thing. Like, he kept saying, we're not going to get into that, and sort of, like, smiling and smirking throughout, and he wouldn't really answer questions about this. So, you know, Wayne Williams, he, he certainly seems to have a lot of bizarre connections to this, you know, intelligence operation and pedophile underworld that he doesn't want to get into. But that doesn't make him a murderer. It, right. However, it does make him a part of this large... Uh, sort of well-oiled machine of child trafficking and child exploitation that probably was the backdrop to these murders. And he he's a very um, higher on the IQ scale and uh, very shifty. I think that there was a famous moment in the trial where they made him break and show his temper, and he, he and that was one of the reasons why the jury was was convinced that uh, he was at least culpable for two of the murders. Is that do you remember a story like that? Yeah, yeah, he was. I mean, he was going. He had made the sort of dubious decision to go on the stand and testify in his own defense, which a lot of, I mean, it's usually a bad move for people to do that if they're trying to get off on these charges. And it's possible that this, uh, that his defense uh, was not actually acting in his best interest and was trying to sabotage the case because there was also a lot of evidence that a lot of this exculpatory evidence that I bring up pointing towards other suspects in these murders or the, the fiber evidence that didn't make sense really didn't surface at trial, and there are, it appears that Wayne Williams' defense, at the very least, could have done a much better job, and so, yes, he ended up going on the stand, and under cross-examination, he started out calm, but they eventually made him lose his temper and start screaming and attacking the prosecutor, so, yeah, that definitely did no uh, assistance to his case. Right. Well, we have hit 42 minutes on the Atlanta child murders alone. Is there anything else that, uh, we missed or anything else other points you would like to make or anything uh no i mean i think we gave a, a pretty comprehensive <laughs> overview of what the atlanta child murders were like I think and that's right. just you know one instance of this whole pattern of how this supposedly open and shut simple serial killer case actually is the cover for a whole dark underworld yes for sure and again it's uh it's george cleese and the website is cavdef c-a-v-d-e-f I'm going to put a link to the website in the show notes on YouTube and Spreaker so people can just click that link. If anybody, are you on social media or anything? If anybody wants to reach out to you, anything like that? Um, I don't, I'm not, I'm not on, you know, super active on a lot of social media platforms. I mean, if you search my name, uh, you could probably find me on Facebook, but I think the best way to reach out to me is to go to the CavDef website uh, which is currently you can only access it by the IP address. It's 45.55.65.82. If you go to the CavDef website, there is a there's like a contact uh, information tab, 
and that has my email address on it. So if people want to reach out to me that way, they can do so. Awesome. George Cleese, The Atlanta Child Killings. Very thorough analysis. I really appreciate it. Great job. Thank you. All right. All right. So...